Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is just going to be an audience questions one. It's been a while since I've done one of these and I've got all sorts of interesting comments and sort of feedback on social media and so on. So I'm just going to take an episode and go through them all. I'm going to try and do it in real time in one take. So as opposed to like my sort of solo narrative episodes where I spend a huge amount of time getting all my sources and research, you're kind of mostly just going to be getting an off-the-cuff reaction here. So, you know, fireside chats with Toby sort of thing, I guess. Um, but I've got some really interesting questions. I'll get through as many as I can before um, I run out of energy or you run out of patience or both. Um... And yeah, I'm going to try and do this one on video as well. I'm not going to do anything like super fancy with it. I have sort of been trying to make a video episode that actually has effects and cuts and stuff. And my God, people who are like professional video essayists, like, you know, Philosophy Tube or something like hands, hands, hats off to you, hands off to you, whatever. Because um, that is like hard. Um, so I'm still learning to do that. But I am trying to get the new episodes out on video. So you can do audio, video. I don't think it makes a huge difference for this one. So let's get straight to it. Apart from, as always, if you enjoy the show, please consider sponsoring on Patreon. That's super cool when people do that and super useful. I don't do any advertisements or sponsorships on the show. So if you do enjoy the content, uh, consider supporting it that way patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast right. audience questions let's get let's get to them in then audience questions so if you're watching this at some point in the future well you're almost certainly watching it at some point in the future if you're watching it significantly in the future i'm recording this on september 10th so i'm just a couple of days out from the queen queen elizabeth the second of england and whatever the official title is um dying at 96 and so that's been filling up all of the political news timelines right now. And I have got quite a few questions about this. Um, in many ways, though, I sort of feel like right at this moment is basically like the worst conceivable time to do analysis. Um, because if you're just reporting the news, and I'm not a news or current events podcast, although I do sometimes you know, respond to things that are going on, you know, just saying, this has happened, the Queen has died, Charles is the new king. You know, that's the time to do that. Or even to give, like, a history of, like, for those who don't know, this is, like, Queen Elizabeth, you know, Elizabeth's life and, you know, what happened in her reign and so on and so forth. But if you're going to try and do what I do, which is, like, this is sort of what it means, this is, like, how this will impact the UK, our 
sort of system of constitutional governance, sort of that sort of like political theory, political philosophy analysis. I feel like you, you, just when it happens is like the worst time to do that because we kind of just don't know how this is going to play out. I've got a hunch about how it's going to play out, but she's been queen for 70 years. Almost no one remembers another monarch. And I think people are still working out in the UK how they feel about it, how they feel about the monarchy going forward. And, you know, we don't have, like, a time machine where we can see how everyone's reactions are eventually going to settle. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I made it a point to not comment on Twitter about this. Um, because, I mean, why haven't I? Be because, I mean, I think I've, I've discussed how I feel about the monarchy before. And I'm not sure how much productive is coming out of it. So, I mean, I'll, I'll cover where I stand on the monarchy and where I stand on some of the immediate reactions that we're getting. But, like, I sort of have in my head a much longer, like, narrative episode about British nationalism and sort of, you know, post-Brexit into now the Charles monarchy. You know some thoughts on that, but I think I need to really think that through a bit more. Um, at the moment, I just have sort of, like, a general direction. I mean, where, where do I stand? I've, I've always been, like, a soft Republican. Republican in the British sense, where what that word means is you'd prefer a republic, so i.e. an elected head of state as opposed to a, a, a monarch. Um, Republican because I'm just really not convinced by any of the arguments that are offered for monarchy. I think they're just generally, from like a political philosophy point of view, not good arguments. With that being said, I say a soft Republican because I'm not sort of... <laughs> Uh, sort of, uh, what's the quote? Mankind will, will not be free until the last king has been strangled with the entrails of the last priest. You know, I'm not that sort of a sort of progressive liberal, right? Um, so yeah, I, I think I'd prefer a republic, but it probably wouldn't make like my top five list of political issues. It definitely wouldn't make my top five. It probably wouldn't make my top ten, even. So that's sort of where I land. I've no problem at all if people do feel sad about this. Um, I will grant the monarchists, certainly, that Elizabeth was a serious, impressive, dignified human being. No problem at all granting that. Um, and if you're going to have a hereditary monarch in a modern age with a sort of constitutional monarchy, someone like her is probably, you know, as good as you're going to get. Um, we'll see how Charles does. Um, like I say, I think we just don't know <laughs> how he's going to sort of carry himself, and we don't know how people are going to react to him yet. So I don't really have, like, a prophecy in, in, in that regard. 
Um, but I think it just does go to show, there's a quote I have in my head I've used in my ancient world once, like, I can never find where it's from, but it's that hereditary monarchy is a roll of the dice. And, you know, sometimes you get someone who seems like a really good fit for the time and place, and you think, aren't we lucky to have them? And then you get other people, you know, that hereditary systems can throw up, and you think, what a, what a nightmare that we select them this way. Um, not that democratic selection doesn't have its pitfalls as well, but, um, I guess in terms of the reaction, I've, like I said, I've stayed off it, off Twitter. I almost always find second-order meta-conversations a bit exasperating, which perhaps I shouldn't, as that a lot of political philosophy is about exactly that. But what I mean by that is I always get a bit exasperated when we're not having a conversation about is thing X good or bad? We're having a conversation about should you really be saying thing X is good or bad right now? Or like, irrespective of the merits, it's not appropriate to say thing X is good or bad. And like, we're sort of having this conversation with respect to the monarchy of like, well, whatever you think about the monarchy, now's not the time to say anything negative. And I always just find that type of tone policing, if I can borrow a social justice word, um, a bit annoying and I think ill-founded. I think I don't, I don't agree with the reasons that people give because, I mean, okay, so look, take the Queen's case. If this were merely a private individual, of no political or symbolic importance whatsoever. I could sort of understand the, 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 the sentiment of, well, look, you might not have liked everything about her, but she did just die, and, you know, show a bit of respect. Certainly, if it was, let's just say it's a problematic person in your family, your racist aunt, who was just awful. <laughs> you know, people made excuses and said it's just her generation, but even that didn't cut it because, you know, she could barely open her lips without a slur coming out, and it was really difficult to be around her, and you'd all try talking to her. But she's just died, and it's her funeral. And as bad as she was, people are in mourning. And you might go, oh my god, what a bigot, I'm glad she's dead. And someone would say, look, Let's just put that to one side right now. She's just died. Let's just honour the good things about her and leave it at that. As, as, is it much like a family member or a friend? I, I genuinely completely understand that sentiment. Right. And as a, an individual, as like just a person, I'm not like happy that Elizabeth's dead or anything. Um, I think even with a couple of exceptions on Twitter, but even her most vociferous critics aren't saying that, right? Because we're not being asked to mourn her or to respect her as a private individual. We're, we're being asked to, to mourn and to evaluate and to think about her significance as a symbol of the state, which she is, right, as head of state, albeit a ceremonial one. And, you know, if it's fine, which it is, for one group of people to say, 
as a symbol of the state, I saw in her a lot of what I feel was positive about Britain. And she was a symbol of that for me. I think that's that's a valid thing to say, right? You know, to assess symbols as symbols. Then it's also got to be fine for people to say, for me, she was a symbol of, of things I didn't like about Britain. And certainly, you know, she's been on the throne for, for 70 years. When you think about everything that Britain has done and that has happened here over the last 70 years, that has neither been self-contained to these islands, nor universally benevolent, right? So if you're asking people how they feel about the symbol of a nation, um, it's pretty understandable, is it not, that people in, let's say, Africa or Ireland or the Caribbean might have quite different feelings about a symbol of Britain as the nation, which again is what we are being asked to evaluate her as. Um, or people inside the UK, you know, we're not uniformly chest-thumping monarchists in this country, right? And so I think you kind of can't have it both ways. You can't say, look, let's just mourn her as if she's a private person, but at the same time, we have to evaluate her as a symbol, but only the good parts of that symbol. You're not allowed to talk about the bad parts. I think that's kind of trying to have your cake and eat it too, irrespective of what her personal culpability in many of the bad things that have happened because of the UK government over that time period. You know, it does seem like, looking at Twitter, some people genuinely feel like the, the Queen was, like, <laughs> you know, saying, all right, you know, we're going to go there and do this type of colonial repression personally. Um, but even saying that she had no personal culpability, and I don't think that's quite true either, she clearly has some blondes of indirect influence. Um, you know, again, we're being asked to evaluate her as a sibyleth, right? As a sort of stand-in for a broader set of things, right? And I think if you want to say, as people who I respect have, look, you know, if your concern is colonialism or, you know, sort of living in a tolerant society or living in a free society or so on, Britain is in a, it just such a better place now than it was 70 years ago. I mean, yeah, no doubt, right? And if you want to say to me that the Queen is a symbol of that, then, yeah, that's fine, that's valid. But at the same time, this sort of, like, how dare you say anything bad, I just think is scolding and... Look, if you are a defender of the monarchy and you really love the Queen and you're grieved by this, I'm not telling you that's wrong to feel that. If what you associated with the Queen was positive things, right? Um, but if you're in that position, look, this woman is standing underneath a Niagara of universally positive acclaim from the British media, the American media, everything you see from 
a sort of like big news source is like 98% positive. It's really only if you go on Twitter that you'd hear people talking about the decolonization period or, you know, wealth and hierarchy and money. It's really only on Twitter. If it bothers you that much, just take a bit of a break from Twitter, right? I, like, actually have found it positive to sort of locate her legacy within a global setting, to take this as a moment to reflect on Britain's role in the world over the last more than half a century, right? And final thought, so I said I wasn't going to talk about the Queen, now I'm talking about the Queen a bit. There seems to be this argument made that's got two fronts to it. One is she wasn't personally in charge. Agreed, and, and I think, you know, assessing her personal culpability in, say, the bad things that happened during decolonization is going to be a complicated task. But again, we're being asked to assess her as a symbol. Um, there's, there's also this thing that says, oh, wait, you're saying the Queen's a symbol of colonialism, which many people are. Don't you realise she presided over us giving up most of our empire? And again, it's, it's hard to get the nuance in these things, right? But, like, let us not forget that the British withdrawing the boundaries of our empire was not something done out of pure benevolence. It, it wasn't something we did because we just said, oh, gosh darn it, no, we realised that this system of global racial domination, oh, God, yeah, we, we were wrong, we messed that one up, right? Cool, better hand back power and... Um, usher in a new era of the universal dignity of mankind. That wasn't quite the thinking, right? Um, a lot of times it's something that happened because of violent resistance, right? And also, I think even the most patriotic British would admit that the way decolonization happened, that there are areas in which it could have gone better, right? That there are... There are <laughs> there are areas in which, if we got a do-over, we could have done it better, such that the, the country we leave behind is better set up for peace and prosperity and flourishing and so on. Um, I mean, certainly, just off the top of my head, if you look at the the way the British withdraw, withdrew from India and the consequences of that, I don't, I don't think anyone's thinking that's a 10 out of 10 there, right? Um, and so, yeah, it's valid for other people to have different points of view on this symbol. And, like I say, I found it personally useful to sort of try and locate various sorts of conversations we're having internally within the country within a, a global context of what Britain has meant in the post-war period. Um... Yeah, so I guess I guess that's like my my piece on the Queen, um, and yeah, tell me tell me what you think about that because like at the end of the day, it might sound like I was sort of trying to split the difference a bit with that answer, um, which maybe I am. I also just think that like there's a lot of sort of people saying. Oh, but you don't understand. British people are just so attached to this institution and monarch and so on. And, like, a lot of us just aren't. A lot of us, it's, like, not 
that big a deal for us. Like I say, I'm not happy she's dead, certainly. And I'm more than happy to say that there's, um, like I say, she's a serious, impressive woman in a lot of ways. That troubles me not at all to say. Um, but like, I think there's, there's a, a big chunk of people in the UK who really do feel very strongly positively about the monarchy. I think there's a smaller group that are like diehard Republicans. I think that's probably quite a small percentage. I also think there's just like a big chunk in the middle who, regardless of what they say in opinion polls, and this is just coming from my experience growing up and living in the country, kind of like, just feel like it doesn't really concern them. Like, it's like, whatever, it's fine. And that may not be the worst attitude to have. Honestly. Let's move on from the Queen, because, like, I talked more than I thought I was going to there. And, I mean, my God, like, it's just everything in the news cycle right now. Switch track completely. Here's a question. So I did my Dating the Gospels episode, and one of the arguments I gave is the fact that I think we can pretty conclusively say that the author of the Gospel of Luke and the author of the Gospel of Matthew used the, the, the Gospel of Mark as a source pretty much is a very, very strong argument that these are not eyewitness accounts. If they were eyewitness accounts, wouldn't they write down what they remembered and not copy basically word for word out of something else? And someone asked me, okay, that's an argument for Luke and Matthew. But what about Mark? What about if an apologist were to come along and say, okay, but Mark, the one they're copying out of, could have been an eyewitness. Your argument about sourcing, assuming Mark and priority, you know, could be. Yeah, no, that's a valid point, and I probably should have addressed it in the episode. So, I'll, I'll perfectly happily um, agree that the apologist has a valid point there. Just on the basis of the analysis I did with the synoptic problem, yeah, that doesn't rule out Mark being a primary source. I think there's other reasons to be a bit sceptical of Mark as a primary source. Um, for one thing, I would date Mark to about the year 70, so 40 years, give or take, after the death of Jesus. So that's, you know, just within the range of what, like, one of the disciples could have been writing. Maybe someone who was 20 when Jesus died and is 60 now, sort of thing. That That's not beyond the realms of possibility. Um, Mark doesn't read like an eyewitness account. It never claims to be an eyewitness account. Um... And there's a few things about it which would kind of lean me towards thinking that it's not. So, for instance, the disciples in Mark are universally presented as idiots, more than in any other gospel. If the author of this is a disciple, why is he at every stage saying, and at this point Jesus said to the disciples, you idiots, you fucking morons. What the hell were you thinking? This is this is basically how Jesus talks to the disciples in Mark. Um, I just, I, I don't think that's how you'd write it. People write themselves as the hero. Now, some people have argued, actually, that the fact that you have sort of secret messages in Mark sort of proves it must be 
an eyewitness because Jesus will say one parable to the to the crowds, right? And then when he's alone with his disciples, he'll explain it and be like, oh, so this is what I meant by that. Could be. Could be that that's, you know, the, the reason for that is that person actually happened to hear it. Or it could be just that what Jesus said to the crowd, that's things that he did say historically, or at the very least, that there is a tradition of him having said that got passed on to the author of Mark. The thing Mark has him say privately, that's just some stuff Mark made up. I actually find that that just has the advantage of parsimony, right? It's a more elegant explanation. And I think that sort of tracks, because in many ways, the bits that Jesus says privately don't always necessarily gel. They're not the brilliant readings of what he was saying publicly, or at least there's a bit of a disconnect. And it feels a lot more like um, this is the, the author coming and trying to, like, get their own theology in there. If that makes sense? Um, I mean, to take the biggest example, the messianic secret, Jesus in Mark only ever reveals to his disciples that he's the Messiah. And then even when he does, he warns them not to tell anybody. Okay, so what's going on here? Two explanations. One, that's historical. Jesus publicly said he wasn't the Messiah, or at least didn't claim it. But then privately to his disciples, let them know that. And 40 years later, one of them wrote that down from a first-hand perspective. That could have happened. I'm not saying that's impossible. Or... Jesus just never believed himself to be the Messiah, never claimed that, and then someone writing 40 years later who didn't know him, who believes he was the Messiah and wants to make that, sort of writes down what's known about him publicly, and then says, look, yeah, yeah, he was the Messiah, and look, look, the reason you haven't heard about this or like it's not part of the tradition, is because he just told it to a few people, right? I, I sort of feel like the second one just feels um, a little bit more plausible to me. Um, moving on. So I've got a question, people, someone said, um, I'm paraphrasing here, I just made like some rough notes. Someone said, you've criticised accelerationists before, but isn't what the Democratic Party is doing? in supporting extreme election-denying Republicans in Republican primaries. Sort of, isn't that sort of a form of accelerationism too? Um, so accelerationism, if you haven't heard the word, is sort of, it's the political theory of like, things are gonna have to get worse before they get better. You know, maybe if we allow the country to slip into fascism, this will finally be the prod we need to provoke a revolution sort of thing. And if it sounds like I'm being a bit dismissive of that, it's because I am. I mean, I just feel like a lot of people really felt like the election of Donald Trump was going to provoke a sort of communist uprising and the backlash would usher in a glorious new era of whatever, right? The election of Donald Trump provoked a backlash that led to President Joe Biden, the most normie of normie Democrats. So... I feel like that theory didn't really quite work out as planned, you know? Um, is what the Democrats are doing, like, the same thing? I think 
to the extent that Democrats have been trying to boost the chances of extremist Republicans, I think that's a bad thing to do. I think probably the reason they're doing it is not accelerationist. They don't think, oh, if we make this Republican Party so bad, it'll collapse. I think it's more short-term and cynical than that. I think what they think is, in a competitive district, we have a better chance of winning if we're running against a lunatic rather than someone who can perform at least the veneer of sanity. I think that's the thinking. I don't think that makes it okay. So if sort of what the question is like, do I think this is good or bad? I understand why they're doing it, but like, yeah, to the extent, I mean, look, we can't save the Republican Party from itself. They're going to have to, to fix this. I don't think they will. And that's one of the reasons I'm perhaps a little bit pessimistic about American politics, even though some of the more recent indicators haven't been that bad. Um, I don't think Republicans have the mechanisms to fix themselves. I don't, th I don't think the opposition can come in and fix the other political party. Um, you know... And I, I, I don't think it's fair, as is often the case, to put the moral responsibility for fixing it on Democrats. There's only so much we can do. With that said, yeah, we should try to avoid making it worse, directly contributing to it being worse, wherever possible. So, yeah, if I were in charge of, like, DNC spending, I wouldn't be doing that. But... No, yeah, I wouldn't be doing that. I, I agree with the, the punchline of the question, if not the... Um, the, the exact characterization. What do I think about Liz Truss? The new Prime Minister of the UK, if you're an American listener. So yeah, we've just had a new PM and a new monarch in fairly short succession. What do I think about Liz Truss? She doesn't make me think a whole lot, if I'm being honest. Okay, can I do any better than that? I mean, look, obviously this is not my type of politician. I cannot imagine a world where I'll be voting for her. I mean, I do find it interesting that the Tories seem to have largely given up on a leader or rhetoric that can make appeal to the median voter or make an appeal to the sort of non-traditional parts of the UK to keep them in the, 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 the Tory coalition. And, you know, this has been the case for a while now, since, you know, the Tories were in exile for a long time under Blair and Brown. And, you know, Cameron, you know, who's definitely a Conservative, always had his, um, you know, a sort of environmentalism, I think it turned out to be quite a surface-level environmentalism, a sort of vague sort of social liberalism, um, uh, 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 you know, the, 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 the much-parodied hugger-hoodie stuff. Um, you know, Theresa May even um, sort of did attempt, perhaps not particularly successfully, but did sort of attempt um, outreach um, Johnson, you know, Johnson's an interesting one in that he was the preferred candidate of sort of the right of the party and the sort of pro-Brexit crowd and the anti-immigration crowd. But he was also put forward as um, a candidate who could sort of, because he'd been mayor of London, he'd got the votes of liberals, he'd won in big cities. And he did sort of ha have a sort of libertarian vibe and rhetoric to him. Um, 
he was sort of put forward as someone who could, and I think to some extent did, give people permission to vote for a right-wing government who don't see themselves as deeply right-wing. And to, to, to be fair, to an extent, he did that. And then, you know, even during his uh, now quite brief time in power, that there was a set, this rhetoric of, like, building up and, like, the idea that, like, in order to keep the, the red wall seats that came in because of the Brexit realignment, we're going to need to offer them something. Now, at the end of the day, what that something turned out to be turned out to be almost entirely rhetorical and ephemeral. Like, I don't think it ever amounted to much real, I think. Perhaps it was slightly increased willingness to just spend public money, and even then. In, in, in the same way as, like, Cameron's environmentalism and, like, hugger-hoodie-ism. I don't think it ever really sort of amounted to much. But, but there was... Even the fact that it was included in the rhetoric, however sloppily or incoherently or disingenuously, the fact that it was included in the rhetoric does show that there, there was a sense of, like, political parties have to build coalitions, political parties have to appeal to the median voter, political parties, in a first-past-the-post system with geographic districts, have to appeal to voters in different sort of regions, right? So this is the, the normal stuff a political party is supposed to be doing. Um, and Liz Truss just hasn't done it at all, as far as I can see. It's, it, it's, and I don't, I don't know that much about Liz Truss. I know she's been a favourite of the sort of party activist base for a long time. She seems like a sincere ideologue, but who knows. Um, it's really just been, in America, you'd say red meat, right? I guess the colours are the reverse here, so it's blue meat, which sounds a bit weird. Clear blue water, there you go. Um, tax cuts and culture war, that's it. Nothing for the red wall, nothing for, for urban liberals, nothing for the median voter, nothing to appeal to younger voters who aren't invested in the right of the culture war, which is most younger voters. So we'll see if, like, the coronation or something can give her a boost in the polls. But so far, she seems to be starting from a considerable place of weakness. Um, I think Labour are about 11, 12 points ahead as of recording. Again, I'm not a prophet. Who knows what that'll be a month from now, particularly with everything that's happening in the UK. But I do just find it interesting, because that's sort of, in a lot of ways, what's gone wrong with the Republican Party, right? is that that thing that political parties are just sort of like their raison d'etre, like the, the thing that they're, they're set up to do of build electoral coalitions, the Republican Party basically decided it's not going to do that and it shouldn't have to do that and that electoral institutions should be enough to keep it competitive and that when they're not, it, it sort of means that the other side cheated, right? The, the, the Republican Party's sort of descent into authoritarianism is because, or, or like one way you can track that and see that, in that it's just stopped having a sense of itself as a political party. I don't think the Tories are there yet, and I sort of find it interesting. Like, what's, what's going on there? Like, 
if, if I'm sort of putting a sort of rational explanation in the heads of the 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 Tory the, the Tory party um, membership electorate maybe they're just sort of thinking Sunak is coming up with with a pitch clearly geared towards winning the next election but we're not going to win the next election so let's just get someone who's like completely on our side doesn't care about the long term and is just going to give us as much of what we want while we're still on power so maybe maybe the tory party is sort of approaching the trust premiership less as a serious long-term plan or even as a pitch for the next election and more as just sort of like a tory closing down sale i can sort of see that or maybe it's simpler than that maybe she most vibed with um you know their personal ideology and biases and in some cases prejudices and they just voted along those lines that that also is probably just sometimes the simplest explanation is correct right I mean, the, the, the Tory party electorate, from what we know, isn't, I don't think it's the same as, like, the Republican Party primary base, in that they have historically cared about electability. Like, that was Cameron's big pitch, right? And I guess it's easier to come along with an electability pitch when you've been in opposition for a decade, but still. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it's weirder and dumber than all of that, like... You know, like, this this section of the British electorate is not huge, but it's, it's there. And, you know, the people who are deep blue Tories, but then will we'll vote for UKIP or, you know, back Nigel Farage and his project and have been, you know, the heart of the sort of most unreasonable of the Leave voters and were the sort of loved Johnson and now have backed Liz, Liz Truss. You know, sometimes the most, like, it sounds insulting to say, and it is insulting, but it does sometimes really feel like there's a certain group of people who actively enjoy being taken for a ride by obvious con artists. That they seem to like that sensation. And I need to... to you know, I, another question, this isn't on the list, but people ask me, when's the book on humiliation coming out? Well, I need to write it first. But when I say things like that, I do sort of realise, OK, I, I do think I need to, to write the book on um, humiliation. Um, I guess following on, is this a turning point in the UK? Um, maybe. I don't know. But maybe not at the same time. So, like, is the death of Elizabeth and the you know, Charles coming to the throne, is this going to be seen in history as a big turning point? Quite possibly. But I think perhaps erroneously, in that I think the UK might has changed quite a lot over the last few years and may change significantly more, but that's just kind of its own process that's happening independent of whatever's happening with the monarchy. Although the, the, the change in the monarch 
may very well come to be seen as a symbol for the change in Britain, but I don't, probably wasn't directly causal. So, like, here's what I mean. First of all, I don't think we're going to see, like, a big Republican moment. There's always, I think a lot of people have just sort of thought, like, Elizabeth's great. We don't really like Charles, William, like, maybe, right? But, like, maybe after Elizabeth we just sort of pack it all in? I think a lot of people have sort of had that thought. I don't think that will happen, because I just think, like, the wheels are already turning. Charles is already king, we're already starting to plan the coronation and whatever, we've already got a new line of succession and so on. Like, the machine is going to keep running until someone jams a gear in the machine. And I don't see who would do that. I don't think, like, hardcore Republicans are numerous enough or politically influential enough to do that jamming. And I don't think, you know, I think that the median opinion in the UK, I think there's a big chunk in the middle who are just purely apathetic and agnostic about the monarchy. I think that's a bigger chunk than people realise. And, like, they wouldn't fight to bring it back if it went, but they're not going to fight to get rid of it now that it's here, right? I think that's... And so, like, where would the energy or impetus to... Especially under a Tory government of Liz Truss, right? They're not. <laughs> you know, I think if Corbyn had been Prime Minister, the thought would have crossed his mind, right? But even then, the PLP would probably have restrained him, right? So... And we saw that they restrained him in that regard. Um, so I don't think it'll be a swing. Will this be, like, a sort of moment where we refine our nationalism? Maybe... And again, for the sort of reasons of the apathetic middle, I'm, I'm kind of inclined to doubt that as well. Here's, here's what I think. I think Britain is clearly polarising in a way that's not exactly the same as American polarisation, quite different to American polarisation, and is, is more complex and it has more like sub-compartments and there's different things going on in different regions and different nationalisms and you know, Scottish nationalism what have you, right? But I, I think it's fair to say that we're, we're coming apart, and although our culture war isn't the same as the American culture war, and it feels a bit awkward and uneasy, uneasy when politicians like Liz Truss try to directly port American culture war rhetoric onto the reality of our politics, it, it, you, you know, we, we are beginning to see, you know, we're not at the just yawning chasm the American polarisation is, but we're seeing the cracks and we're beginning to, I think, get a sense of, like, if that chasm does open up, sort of where it will be and where it will run. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I can very well see that in five, ten years we are much more polarised than even we are now and that we're sort of entering a sort of perhaps like like US in 2016 sort of politics, right? I can see, I can totally see that. And I think if that were the case, then the way people would read that history back is they'd say Britain was growing apart and then with the death of Elizabeth, the last thing holding us together, you know, the last thing we could all really agree on went away. And without her, her sort of soft touch political, unifying, whatever, the country just you know, fell into to different parts or different regions or different sides of the culture war. I think that's what the history written back would be. At this point in history, again, recording two days out from the Queen's death, 
to my mind, the process that would have actually happened there is that for a long time the country has been polarising, that we are beginning to sort of invest ourselves in something a bit like an American culture war. I mean, in many respects, because a lot of people are very invested in us having something a bit like an American culture war, even if the public so far has shown a limited appetite for it. Um, but the reasons of that for that are you know, big and complex and historical, but don't really necessarily relate to the monarchy in any real way. The change of monarch is something that just happened concurrent with that process, right? So, yes, to, to put it, you know, you know, the UK may well be at quite a different place ten years from now, but, like, it, it, it might be that this this is just something that sort of happened alongside it, is more my sense of it, but who knows? Who knows? You know, we're two days out. If for some, you know, if in a week or two's time, the, let's just come up with a scenario, the Labour polling lead had collapsed and the Tories were, were, were back out ahead in a sort of wave of flag-flying patriotism and investment in Britain, the Brexit project became more popular. Then, and I'm not saying that won't happen, um, then I would have to say that the analysis I just gave you here is wrong, right? And I will say that. Um, that's really just my hunch at this moment. I don't know, right? Um, oh, here's an interesting one. How do you maintain a commitment to individuality while still backing social justice commitments that tend to revolve around groups? Yeah, I like this question because... You know, I, I, I'm a liberal. I, I think individuality is a good thing and individualism is a good thing. Um, I'm also, you know, on board with most of what social justice movements are, are pushing. And there does seem to be a bit of a tension there. Um, I think it's a tension that can be resolved. Um, I, think it's, I think it's sometimes a tension that... Is taken a little bit too seriously by like classic libertarian liberals, and perhaps not seriously enough by social justice advocates. And I think, you know, with, with reasonably good intentions, social justice advocates can sometimes talk in a way that universalizes the experience of particular groups and sort of homogenizes everything and assumes that there is one voice you know, speaking for, or like there is one thing that we can call the black experience or something, right? In a way that is a little bit iffy from a liberal point of view. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't, like I said, I don't think it's, it, it's an insoluble problem, but I think it's, it, it's a challenging one and one that is worth thinking through and thinking seriously um, about. Um, and, and I think, you know, th th this could be a whole episode. It's a brilliant prompt. It's a great prompt. This is a really good political philosophy prompt. I think I'll just give you, like, a starting point of, like, how I think about it. So and there's a few different ways you could do this. But I think... So... I, I think the, the way I think about it is a particular group 
may share in common a particular form of oppression, even if that oppression's effects on individual members isn't uniform, and we can recognise that oppression of that group, recognising the group as a meaningful social construct without then assuming that the reaction, response, beliefs of every individual member of that group are the same or share unifying characteristics. L let's go through an example because um, I'm not sure if what I just said made any sense. So let's just take um, black people living in the United States. And I pick this one because I did an episode a while ago on why the black vote went to Joe Biden and not, say, Bernie Sanders in the primary. I spent a lot of time like reading about it and talking to black friends about it and so on. So that's just one where I have the facts and figures to mind, and so I'm reasonably prepped to talk about it. Although, of course, the usual caveat of you know, white guys, so I'm talking from not from the perspective of lived experience, but the perspective of uh, social science and conversations with people who do have lived experience. Um, I think it makes sense to say that as a group, black people in the United States were historically oppressed as a group, right? In that it wasn't just a case of going, you know, Bob, screw him, Jim, screw him, Charles, Charles is good, good job, buddy, Mark, screw him. You know, it, it, it wasn't, you know, people were saying, black people we are recognising as a group of people and we're going to treat badly because of their membership in that group. And to, you know, black people in America are still oppressed in the social justice sense of oppression, not as explicitly stated legal inequality, but as a sort of broader, 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 um, broader set of systematic disadvantages or double standards, something like that, right? So I think, yeah, it makes sense to say black people in the United States are oppressed as a group, right? Um, now, that's not to say that the way every individual black person experiences that oppression will be the same. You know, for, for one thing, race isn't the only identity people have, right? There's black men and black women and straight and gay and rich and poor and right like you assume that the the experience of racism for a black billionaire will be different from a black homeless person right um and it's not just like intersectionality which i feel like can sometimes become get untethered from its original quite narrow meaning by crenshaw and just balloon into this kind of like vague amorphous rhetoric of everything um, it's not just like people have different identities, it's just like people have different lives, people make different decisions, people like, some people are lucky and some aren't, you know, so, so, so the, 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 the oppression is not uniform in its effects, but it still, I think, makes sense to talk about the group experiencing oppression as a group. And incidentally, um, if you poll public opinion on black Americans, that will 
they will overwhelmingly bear you out on both of those propositions. So it is the, the overwhelming, overwhelming view of like 90 whatever percent of black Americans that there are still problems with race and racism in America. Not absolutely every, you know, there's, there's perhaps, you know, there are a few who don't think that, but like the overwhelming majority think racism is still real. If you ask black people, how are you personally impacted by racism, at least in polling, you get a fairly mixed response. Some people will say massively it's the number one thing holding me back in life. Some people will be like, you know, yeah, a bit, it's there. And some people will be like, honestly, I'm doing pretty good. And like, maybe there was this thing a few years back, but like, you know. Um, so, so you do get a very, very mixed response. Black people in America overwhelmingly believe that racism is still a real thing and a real problem but are much more mixed in how they say it's affected them personally. Which I think makes total sense, right? And now, what, what like, people will do at this point is they'll say, okay, so you're saying, as part of our descriptive stroke normative analysis, we need to recognise this thing called black people as a category of persons. And it's important to, to link that to this concept of oppression, which, by your own admission, you've defined quite loosely. Um, but, but then, Toby, you've also just said that, of course, every individual within that group is different and, and, and like, experiences that oppression differently. And, you know, black men it will be different from black women and rich people and poor people and so on. But so, so surely by the end of it, like, of what use is sort of this, this group-level analysis. Um, the, the problem with that argument is you could run it on anything. Um, Jacob Levy has a good article about this, of how to integrate social justice concerns into liberalism without having to compromise one too seriously for the other. And he makes the point that, like, you could say that about anything, right? Like, you're going to have to, like in your analysis, divide up groups of people. You're going to have to say political parties and voters, right? You're going to have to say, like, different income levels. Or, you know, you're going to have to say, like, people of this and that ideology. And those definitions that you're putting on people will never be perfect. They'll always have fuzzy boundaries. And there'll always be huge internal variation within those groups. But I'm, I'm paraphrasing Levy here, he says, but the end result of social analysis can't be to destroy the possibility of social analysis, which is to say, correctly recognising the sort of inexactness of these categories can't mean that we stop using these categories, right? So in the case of, you know, black people in the States, of course, it's, there's all sorts of internal variation within that group. Um, but surely that can't then mean that talking about black people doesn't mean anything, right? Pretty sure to most black people it means, most white people as well probably, like it, the word definitely means something, right? And like think about it this way. If I'm just taking a bird's eye view of America, and this is how I sort of got into talking about 
race in the dunk wasn't really coming at this from like that's what i want to talk about on the podcast it's just i wanted to talk about american politics and you really can't talk about american politics or, or you can't give a full analysis of it without talking about race you just can't so like coming at it to, to wit coming at it from a bird's eye view you know i've got a a, a huge democracy where at a federal level if only white people voted, Democrats would never win another national election ever again. If only black people voted, the Republican Party would cease to exist, and America would transition into one of those democracies that only has one political party, and all of the democratic inputs come from sort of jockeying for position within that party, right? Or factions competing for power within that party. Which is in America I'd actually quite like to, 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 to live in if every election was sort of, you know, Barack Obama Democrats versus AOC Democrats. That would probably be, at the very least, it would be preferable to the current America, right? Um, so, given that just massive, massive shift in, in you know, difference in, in, in voting patterns... It would be absolute madness to start looking at American politics and say, say, race, talking about race is of no analytic interest to us here. Even if we're just talking like a descriptive analysis, race is of no interest to us. It's obviously a huge part of why people vote the way that they do, right? Um, and so if you're going to say, okay, it's going to be part of an analysis, you're going to have to put a concept to it, right? Um... And so I think of necessity, you know, um, even just doing descriptive analysis, we have to have concepts for groups that experience oppression as groups. Again, oppression in the sort of larger social justice sense of the word. Um, like, you just have to, I think. Um, and then you can say as a normative analysis, once we do our descriptive analysis, if we find that, yes, they are experiencing oppression as groups, that impacts political behaviour, it in impacts life outcomes, it it's a result of history and blah, blah, blah. Right. You, you do that analysis, then you can say, OK, well, what's our normative response to it if that's what's happening? How does that change our, if at all, you know, moral responsibilities? And I've tried to walk through my views on that a number of times. I think I land at, at a view somewhere towards the end of the progressive left and the sort of perhaps, you know, social justice-ish side of, side of the spectrum. Um, I think sometimes once you get out to the hard end, you can get people who do get into something where their analysis is, is really just does seem to be only of groups, right? And that, like... Like, they have the social justice analysis of groups who experience oppression as groups, but that's sort of the beginning and end of how they formulate their, their worldview. And so I think the danger isn't in saying people experience oppression as groups, is that saying there's like an essence to what it is to be black or gay or a man or a woman, and that that's, there's some shared property that everyone has. Um... Which there's, there's not. I mean, the way I would try and explain black public opinion in the States is there's like an overlapping 
the Venn diagram, right? And the bit in the middle that maybe not absolutely every, but the vast majority of the circles converge on is something like the proposition racism is real, right? That, that's basically the bit that like most people can agree on, which sort of bears out the a group experiencing oppression as a group, right? But then people go in a lot of different directions with it. And I'm just directly paraphrasing Black Friends. It's a great quote and it's always stayed with me. Um, black people don't in America don't fit neatly onto the existing ideological spectrum. They kind of have their own ideological spectrum. And so if you've got the racism is real bit of overlap, one sort of circle that comes out to non-overlap would be the social justice ideology that uses words like intersectionality and oppression, as I just have been. Um, you might talk about stuff like white fragility or white tears or colonialism and so on and so forth. Right? That's, that's one part, but that's not the language and the ideology and the rhetoric that every black person uses, and actually arguably isn't the one that most use. There's another one, um, which is very important politically, which would be the language of faith. Um, the, the black Americans are some of the most religious Americans and how they process the, 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 the history of um, racial oppression and continuing racial oppression is, is through the, the language and rhetoric and iconography of Christian and um, Islamic, in fact, uh, faith. Um, and that's, you know, a circle of the Venn diagram that... Um, that really got ignored by the progressive left. This was a big part of my analysis of like why the votes went the way they did in the 2020 primary. And that, that, that just goes to my point of, in this case, the practical, not even the moral dangers, but the practical liabilities of assuming that because a group experiences oppression as a group, and that the group is a useful unit of analysis there, that every member of it reacts the same way. I think Elizabeth Warren, who I liked, you know, sort of thought, okay, I recognise that, you know, we're living in a moment where you know, protests about police violence and so on, this is something people want to hear about. And so they assumed, how do I talk to black people about race? I talk to it by, talk to them about it by using these sort of intersectional concepts. And that worked for a certain subgroup, particularly of younger, educated people of colour, right? Didn't necessarily land for others, because they're, like I say, part of one of the other circles on the Venn diagram. And those aren't the only two that, you know, it'd be a huge complicated picture and be the rest of the episode to go through that. Um, and if, you know, people respond and believe very different things on the base, you know, in response to, to group oppression. They certainly believe different things and make different life choices in, in response to, to every, every other area of life, to, to, not just to be mundane. Um, black people like eating different foods and have different culinary tastes, and there's a lot of stereotypes about, you know, what types of food black people and white people eat that, that you know, may even have some truth as like overall statistics but like of course there's exceptions and those people don't stop being black or white because you know their tastes 
aren't those stereotypically associated with with their race, right? And I think there 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 can be a tendency to speak for a group, which I always when I do my analysis of any sort of like social justice issue, I really try and say I'm not doing that. I'm not trying to speak for. Even on the rare occasions I am part of that group, which I'm usually not. Um, but just like in this, this episode, I'm not speaking for British people, not that British people are an oppressed class particularly, we're usually the ones doing it. But I think it's one thing. There's a really, really good essay um, by Liam Bright, uh, last positivist on Twitter, um, where he, I think it's called White Psychodrama. If you're on philosophy Twitter, you'll know what this is. Where he sort of, I won't run through it all, but it's very much about, like, there's sort of a self-depreciating bit in it, where he's like, yeah, and, like, black people, sort of, like, especially those of us in academia, like, suddenly find, you know, liberal white people turning to us and, like, saying, so, like, like expecting us to talk for all black people and sort of tell them what the black perspective is. Um, and of course we can't do that, but we kind of are asked and we have an incentive to answer, so we do. Um, and it's, it's a nice sort of bit of like quite stark, uncomfortable at times, but quite funny as well, writing. Um, and, and, and I think it's quite, like, he's like, yeah, of course we can't speak for every individual, but we kind of, like, are expected to somehow. Um, and then I think a lot of people don't even have that level of, like, unease with it, and they just straightforwardly talk for groups as if they really are, like, the king of that little, 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 you know, demographic subsection or whatever. And then it becomes even more grating, and I think people, this is where people start to get annoyed, is when someone who's not part of that group starts lecturing you about what every member of that group believes, as if they spoke for it. Like when a, when a white person starts saying, well, black people think X. And like, white people can have opinions about this stuff. I'm a white person, I have opinions. But just be a bit, one, just be a bit careful about your language. What you don't mean is every single black person shares this view. What you mean is, Let's make that claim a bit more tangible and specific. When polled, which carries all of its own caveats, when polled, such and such a percentage seem to believe this, which I think, I hope at least, is when I've talked about what's majority black opinion. I've said, I've not said these, I've said when polled, this is the sort of percentage that believes that, or will, will say they believe it to a pollster, right? Now, sometimes I think that's just like sloppy language. Sometimes I, th I get the feeling people really do sort of believe in, like, essential characteristics and, like, you, you know, like, like I, you get these analysis of, like, like, look, you know, we live in a world that is the aftershock of, of Olafemi Taiwo said in that, that the, the interview I did with him with Global Racial Empire, right? Um, we live in the aftermath of Europe having colonised the world, right? P 
people sometimes talk as if there's just something intrinsically evil about white people. Like, we're just sort of colonisers in our blood. Um, and that, like, the world was an entirely peaceful place prior to colonisation and that it'll revert to that once evil white people, you know, there'll be no hierarchies of domination or class systems. Uh, once the Because it, it's just like an instinct white people have that black people or non-white people don't. And, like, I'm not, like, particularly hurt by that. If people want to say mean things about European empires, I mean, just, you know, I, I covered this with the Queen, right? I really, like, I have no problem at all. And I think it's a necessary and kind of refreshing voice, like I say, when you're standing under this Niagara of monarchy propaganda. It's quite nice to have that voice there. But I do just sort of wonder about the, like, essentializing tone of it at times. You know, and it, it's tricky because, like, I think if I really push that point hard, um, I can just very much sound like the white fragility, right? The topic of Robin D'Angelo's famously disliked book. Um, so, like, I don't think it's the... I don't, I'll put it this way. I don't think it's politically dangerous. Partly because I... You know, I'm talking about the radicals within a radical movement that really ha is in no danger of coming to power anytime soon. And when it does come into positions of power, i.e., say, in the case of workplace diversity trainings, does so in a very sort of sanitised form. Um, very denuted form. Very... I'm not saying the transition from the radical to the, the corporate is a good one. Uh, definitely not. I, I, I prefer the radical most of the time to the corporate. But I'm not scared of it. Like, I don't, you know... Um, I, I, people talk about, like, Western civilizations under threat. I'm like, of course it's not. This is just hysteria and fear-mongering, right? So I don't think it's, it's something we need to be especially alarmed by. We might, where people purporting to be acting for social justice concerns get positions of power, i.e. when corporations start branding themselves in certain ways. I think then when it's in power, we might ask questions of it. Um, it's more just like, I just sort of don't think it's right when you get this real, like, essentialization of groups and, like, a sense that a sort of no true Scotsman fallacy sense of like all real, real black people agree with this or all real gay people agree with this. Um, and like the sort of, yeah, I just don't think it's right. Like to, 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 to sum this all up, I am a sort of classical liberal, not in the economic sense or even in the sort of dude bro debate me type sense, but I'm a classical liberal in the sense that I do think we want to treat people as individuals. We want individuality in a broader, more substantive sense if we want people to be able to and to be empowered to make choices in their own lives and that people are different and that we want to have people lead different lives and we want to celebrate that. At the same time, um, there is such a thing as society. Um, there is such a thing as social groups. There is such a thing as collective interests. Um, and we have to sort of reconcile and balance and trade off the two, right? To be fair, 
I've, so, I've focused a bit on the social justice side. I think the danger can also, and perhaps more commonly does, run completely the other way, in that people want to say, look, we're all just individuals, and I'm just colourblind, and, like, I'm looking at only individualism, and there's no point in using these group signifiers at all, and I've already given my response to that, which is the end result of social analysis can't be to destroy the possibility of social analysis. Um, because everyone in their social ontology has groups, be it like the firm or the market or the state, right? You can't do it without that. Um, but yeah, I, I think you've got to try and navigate between those two impulses, between the needs of society and groups and the need to bring that as part of our analysis and the need for individualism and individuality. Yeah, I'm, I'm a classic, classic liberal in that sense. And that it's difficult and that finding that trade-off, even in theory, is, is really challenging. And that finding it in practice is even harder, right? And so... I think that kind of is the, the challenge, but also the excitement and opportunity of a progressive classical liberal, if there is such a thing, is, is the challenge is being able to sort of articulate that in a way that it doesn't sound, by, by understanding that there are challenges and, and potential like complications and trade-offs, you're not like dismissing like the, the 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 you know groups are oppressed as groups right you're not saying that that's not real when you talk about individualism because a lot of people are saying that it's not real when they talk about individualism like my talk of individualism isn't to try and de-radicalize or um paper over the concerns that people have as members of groups and at the same time sort of say to perhaps the more libertarian side that like I want to take a certain amount of what you have to say but like 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 a, you know a strong a strong positive evaluation of of people making their own choices and leading their own lives can can sit within or can sit alongside um concerns about the oppression of groups as groups um, it might have to be compromised at certain points, but I don't think too severely. And in some cases, people, you know, the ability of people to lead their own lives and make their own choices can be significantly enhanced by by tackling the consequences of, of, of group oppression. Um, and I think the, the the that's the challenge. I think the sort of opportunity and the excitement is. I think you can draw a more a, 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 a much better descriptive analysis with that point of view. I think I think it leads you away from some of the most obvious pitfalls that people walk into. And I think it enables you to, to sketch out a more compelling, forward-looking vision of the future. Again, um, you know, I agree with um, Olaf Emutaiwu and we're considering reparations that a backwards-looking model where it's just about, like, you know, we had this oppression in the past and it's about feeling bad about it or making amends for it. That doesn't work either in terms of justice or in terms of mobilising people for action. I think that the, 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 the both philosophically correct and more rhetorically likely to persuade is to say we want a future 
in which people are happy and flourishing and able to lead their own lives and make their own choices and be treated as individuals, which is to say we want a, a free society. Um, now, to get there, we are going to have to think about the oppression of groups because that's one of the things going wrong in our society. And, like, we are going to... We want both in the short, medium and long run to move us towards that sort of more liberal future, and each stage of that will sort of, will involve thinking about race or gender or class or economic equality, say, right? Um, and I'm prattling on this because I have a lot to say and I'm just doing it off the cuff, and putting it as a sort of, this is how we make things better. I think the, the challenge is, it can sound like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth, and that you can sound to either side like you're dismissing their concerns or talking over them. That's the challenge. The opportunity is, I think, it's a better way of understanding the world and that there is at least the possibility to create a more compelling vision of the future. How long have I been talking? Shall I do any more? an hour. What do you think? One more? One more? No. It's getting dark outside. I'll do one more. Oh, oh god. And one more is the biggest one. Um, Like, a collection of questions about the midterms. Uh, okay, so. I don't know what's going to happen in the midterms. I really pride myself on getting good predictions about American politics. I called the last midterms, called Biden winning, called Trump winning. I'm not sure yet what's going to happen. And I think that's correct to not be sure, because the indicators we have are very, very mixed. And we've, as of recording, we've just started campaign season. So I think it's correct to say you're not sure at this point, because we probably will, I suspect, be in quite a different place even two months from now, which is, I think, when they're happening. Yeah, November, yeah. Um, just for British listeners, the midterms, by the way, are... There's presidential elections every four years in America and congressional elections every two. So there's congressional elections at the same time as the presidential ones. So in the last ones in 2020, the Democrats won the presidency and they also won Congress. Um albeit by very, very narrow majorities, but they, they, they won Congress. Um, but before the next presidential, because Congress is on two-year cycles, the Senate's a bit more complicated, but the House is on two-year cycles. There'll be one in the middle in 24. And that's significant because if the Democrats lose Congress, unless the Republicans cooperate with them on stuff, which they're probably not going to be inclined to do, um they really won't be able to do anything going forwards. Um, more than that, if the Democrats could increase their majorities by a little bit, they're a few votes shy of really significant stuff like federally protecting abortion rights, like voting rights reform, stuff like that. So that's sort of like what's going on and what's the stakes. The historic trend is that the President's party almost always loses seats in the House during a midterm. I say the House, not the Senate, because the Senate's weird. Um, but 
There's been a few cases where they haven't. Um, in 2002, um, uh, sort of shortly after 9-11, the Republicans, Bush's party, gained a few votes. Democrats gained a few votes in 98 after the um, sort of, I think, pretty clear backfire of the, the Clinton impeachment. Um, and then I think you have to go quite a bit further back, like beyond anything that would be an apples-to-apples comparison to find the other ones. And so it's like, it's something like out of the last two dozen, there've been three where the president's party. Um, um, and the thing is, if the Democrats really lose any seats at all, they'll lose their majorities, right? So the expectation based on historic trends would be that the Democrats are, are um, gonna lose um, their majorities in Congress. Um, which is pretty consequential because there's a lot of stuff we need the Democrats to do to, like, shore up basic human rights and American democracy. And we really don't want the um, Donald Trump's Republican Party to be near the levers of power. So it's quite a con consequential election. Um, the historic trend, though, would be that they will lose. What's been weird about that is that we've had mixed indicators. Biden's approval rating has been pretty low, which would suggest that Democrats, you know, an unpopular president will lose seats. That that certainly makes sense. Although it has gone up again recently, although still only to the low 40s, right? It's gone from disastrous to merely bad. But, you know, hey. But, you, you know, on paper, you don't expect a president at 40 2% approval to retain the House when they only have a five-seat majority. Um, Democrats are massively leading in polling in the Senate elections. Now, I think all of us, by us I mean like American political commentators, kind of in our guts don't trust that because it's the states that get polling wrong. and It's like Ohio and Pennsylvania, right, which are showing Democratic leads, which, like, Democrats... Those aren't impossible states for Democrats to win by any stretch, but they're also the states that kind of have a history of overstating a Democratic lead in their polling, as they did in 2016 and 2020. And so we just don't know, right? Like, it could be accurate. It could be that they're inaccurate and actually, actually the Democrats are leading by, like, 15 points. It could be. But we don't know. Um, but I think a lot of us have a sort of burn me three times, just whether it's rational or not, instinctive caution about those polls. Um, the generic congressional ballot, which is just to say, if you poll Americans on who would you rather was in charge of Congress, Democrats or Republicans, that's gone up, not a huge amount, by like three percentage points, but it's gone from a narrow Republican lead to a narrow Democratic lead. So, yeah, you know, it's only a few points, but like the fact that Democrats are leading is really weird. Like, like, like I say, the overwhelming trend is that the President's party does badly, um, and that's reflected in polling. Most of the time the President's party's polling anywhere from a few points to like a billion points, literally a billion points, behind in these sorts of polls. And according to polls right now, we were, uh, Democrats are doing very well, according to the Senate polls, like, basically, 
like it's a coin flip according to the house polls and pretty badly according to the presidential polls we do have though and i'm inclined to put the most stock in this special elections which is to say like if a congress man or woman goes and does something else um, gets appointed to another role or resigns or whatever they have another election to determine their replacement and it's a bit dumb in a sense because often these people they'll have an election and we're only a few months out for the midterm so they're going to get elected and then just have to fight for the seat again but such as the american political system where there's always someone getting elected to something special elections are interesting in that it does it's a bit like by-elections in the uk they're not it's a bit of a danger to make them representative of where we'll be in the general. People might be voting in a sort of... I think people vote in a bit of a different sense in one-off elections than in, like, general elections. But it's still, it is a barometer of where we're at. Where we're at is prior to the Dobbs decision, which is when Roe v. Wade was overturned and the constitutional protections for abortion were gutted, prior to the Dobbs decision, Republicans were doing, like, okay in special elections. Like, they were maybe doing a little bit better in the same area than they did in 2020, which is exactly what you'd expect from the historic trend. After the Dobbs decision, I did an interview with the philosopher in the news podcast about a week or two after the Dobbs decision, and we were sort of talking about, is this going to produce a sea change in America? Is this... There's been this expectation that a, that a row overturn will cause... Uh, uh, political realignment in America. There's been that expectation for decades now. It happened, and you didn't see it. And I was sort of getting all these questions about, like, you know, will this group of people go here? Will this go that? You know, is there going to be an electoral backlash against Republicans? And I was just like saying there might be, but we haven't seen it yet in the polls. We haven't seen it yet. Well, we, I don't think we had special elections at that point. But I, I sort of like, and I must admit, I was a bit flummoxed too. Because I could see, in an age of, like, uber-partisanship and negative partisanship, and in an age where a lot of people's political motivations come from, like, being afraid of the other team, essentially, that even a really important issue like abortion might not cause the sort of seismic shifts that, that, that we've been expecting it to. But at the same time, it wasn't making sense in my head, because I was like, I can see that it's not producing, like, these 20-point swings, like, in the electorates of old, but, like, nothing, absolutely nothing, feels weird to me, too. Um, and since then, that was about a month, a month and a half ago, we have seen the shifts. It hasn't been huge. It hasn't, it hasn't been these 20-point swings that used to happen, like, in, in, in the olden days. But it has moved. It, there has been a backlash to Republicans. It has moved towards 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 Democrats, um, and yeah, I mean, it was always going to be the case that a row overturn would be overreach by Republicans. And I sort of said this when I did my abortion episode. I said I think they're going to do it, but like, you know. That might not necessarily be the best strategic play for them, and that's that does appear to be where where we're at. Um, and I would there's been a lot going on. Gas prices have started falling again. Um, you know, inflation. I have a bloody economics degree, and I still like sometimes don't understand what's going on with that. But 
uh, inflation is possibly cooling, although if people are feeling it bad in their pocketbooks yet, I'm dubious about. So there's a few other things going on. Also, of course, there's everything that's gone on. We haven't even touched on the Trump secret nuclear documents thing. Haven't even touched on that, but that's been happening as well, as well as the January 6th Commission. The polls have shifted a bit. The indicators have shifted a bit for Democrats. So did I get round to saying, this is, this is where you can tell I haven't scripted this, that the special elections, I said, had been going well for Republicans. After Dobbs, they, they've been going well for Democrats. Really well. Like, really well. Like, if we do what we've been doing in special elections, we'll hold the House. Um, but the, the, the indicators we have are all a bit all over the map, right? And I think what people try and do here is like the Nate Silver type of thing, the 538 type of thing, where they say, oh, well, you know, this indicator correlates this much historically, and this indicator correlates this much historically. I think that can kind of... You can kind of go too far down the statistical rabbit hole, as if there's like a physical law that you're trying to get to, right? As if there's some formula where like a midterm can be predicted this much on the president party control, this much on popularity, this much on economic fundamentals. And there's like a formula that you can put it all into that will give you a prediction. Whereas like people make decisions for all sorts of reasons, right? Political, you know, try explaining even to yourself, why you decided, how you decided what you wanted for your last meal. It was what was in the fridge. Oh, there's other stuff in the fridge. Why'd you choose that? It was what I felt like, but why? <laughs> like, like, there is a sort of just people do stuff kind of element to this. And I think with American politics in particular, you know, we don't really treat British politics this way. I don't think Europeans do either. With American politics, we like, really think we can get it down to a science and stuff is going to happen that's going to happen. I think regardless of what happens, there'll be something a bit counterintuitive about it. Let's just take like the two end cases. End case one, Democrats pick up Senate seats, they pick up House seats. That's unusual because that, that almost never happens, right? Or option two would be, let's just say it's straightforward. You know, it, 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 the, the polling was off and you know Republicans just took both. Like both of those would leave stuff to be explained, right? And so I think then what you have to do is it's not a matter of, like, you, you, you take the statistics, you take all of that, you let it inform your opinion. If all of that's pointing one way, then you can see, yeah, this looks like it's what is going to happen. But when the, the um, sort of available clues that you have are kind of all over the shop, as they are here, I, I think it, 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 maths will only get you so far, and then you just have to get into the realm of judgment and argument. Like, there's not, like, a sort of objective answer here. Um... So, like, one of the ways I think about it is, like, what would have happened, you know, if, and what analysis would, would, would we do, and what would sort of be the right or the best analysis if, say, it was a democratic sweep, right? What would explain, um, 
why that happened. And, and then I think what you do is you just create stories and you have to sort of think which of these stories seems to vibe with where we're at. So, I mean, just quickly, like, say it was a democratic sweep. What's gone on there? Well, I think the, the immediate answer people give would, would be the norm is the, the, the president's party loses seats. But when something really significant happens, that can disrupt that. So 9-11 disrupted it for in Republicans' benefit. The Clinton impeachment disrupted it in um, the benefit of Democrats. Um, yeah, that would make sense. I think you'd, you'd, I'd probably want to go a bit further and say why. Why is it the norm and why have these events disrupting it? I think the, the analysis that would be brought to bear would be the analysis of balance, whereas I would do the analysis of fear. So what I mean by that is people say, oh, people tend to like vote. If there's a Democratic president doing a whole load of stuff, they'll vote for Republicans to check their power and like ensure more compromise or something. Some voters think like that. Pundit brain thinks like that. People with columns and other fancy sinecures, which they seem to do nothing to earn, think like that. I'm not really sure voters think like that, or like not a majority of voters. Um, I think people often vote because they're afraid of stuff. And I think, particularly in a country like America, people feel like their political opponents are out to get them or they're out to get people like them and that they are in danger if their political opponents are in power and that feeling is often accurate right like so i think the norm is when your party is in power you feel safe when the other party is in power you don't feel safe and at the margin you're more likely to vote i think that's that's a big part of it things that disrupt that fear calculation disrupt the pattern i feel unsafe because america has been attacked by al-qaeda the incumbent party is what's keeping me safe from that, so I'll vote for them. Even the Clinton impeachment, again, what do we, my political enemies are coming after me. I think a lot of people looked at Clinton, and I'm not saying this is at all right, I think this is just how people thought about it, and a lot of people, men and women, sort of thought, is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my sex life got publicly outed like that. I think a lot of people felt a lot of empathy for Clinton. What would I do if this was me? And that's not to exonerate Clinton. I don't think like, oh, you know, he just, you know, had sex or whatever, like, with an intern massively his junior who worked for him while he was the most powerful man in the world. Like, I don't fully, <laughs> I'm not sure if it was impeachable, but it wasn't, this wasn't great, right? Um and arguably obstructed justice to cover that up. There's that. Um, but I think sort of people felt like these republic, you know, they're really like coming after a, just a good old boy who like, you know, who hasn't screwed their secretary sort of thing. And I think both men and women can think like that. And I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying I think that's people, 
instead of being, you know, the party that was in power for once was scared of their political opponents coming after them. I'm not saying rationally. I mean, I guess the unusual thing is, in that scenario, that sort of reflexive, but the poor men who are victims of, like, harassment claims, you'd expect that sort of reactionary impulse to be mobilised on behalf of a right-wing political party. It's certainly a big part of the Republican grievance appeals now, and I think why all the allegations against Trump and many other figures aren't really connecting with, with, with the party base. Whereas, whereas in the Clinton case, it was it was that sort of, again, reactionary fear about, like, women making wild accusations or, like, people's private lives and misdeeds, including potentially abusive misdeeds, being outed again. It's perhaps a bit unusual for that to be weaponized on behalf of the left-wing party, but nonetheless, I think it was a sense that, like, the, the moralists are out to get me, you know? Um... I'm not sure I explained that the best, but I think in both cases of 9-11 and the Clinton thing, there was, like, a fear thing that went to people's personal lives that, like... Again, I'm not saying it's rational, but, like, I think a lot of Americans after 9-11 were walking around feeling like their local post office was going to get blown up. And I think at certain points... Um when there's been flashpoints around sexual harassment or, like, abusive behaviour, you know, usually by men, like, it gets a fear reaction. Like, I think a lot of men who've, you know, maybe have done bad things, like, are sort of feeling, God, what if that happens to me? And I think that motivates people's fear. Um, so I think it would be... So the, 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 the analysis there would be very obvious, right, in the case of, of the row overturn. People are afraid. And it's also like the powerful people are coming to get me thing, right? Or the, the threat is real, it's coming for me. Instead of like the powerful person being Joe Biden or the Democrats, it's kind of inverted that in that the people in power are now seen as Republicans. And it's the Republicans who are coming. And I think a lot of Americans' pro-choice has become something, something of a sibboleth, like, for life, sorry. In that, like, there's a lot of people who sincerely believe life at conception, all of that. That's a big chunk. I'm not saying it's not. I think a lot of people are, like, pro-life in the sense that, like... I'm a bit uneasy with abortions. I don't like the idea of them really late term. I kind of would like to live in a world with less of them. And also, at the same time, I have a bunch of hang-ups about sexism. At the same time, I sort of feel like the sexual revolution has gone too far. At the same time, I have a strong personal preference that the partner I'd like to have should have had relatively few to none sexual partners prior to me. Um, that's, by the way, that feeling, a preference for your, you know, long-term partner, husband, wife, whatever, um, is one of the number one correlates of a pro-life position. Um, in men and women. But I think people have that. So that's sort of what they mean by pro-life. And then it's like, you know, we will be forcing people to give birth, including, you know, rape victims, kids, whatever, you, you personally. And it's like, whoa, that's not what I meant by pro-life. You know, I've been voting for politicians who've been flatly telling me 
you know, Republicans in America, politicians have always been, you know, in these huge, vast coalitions of this massive nation. They're always talking out of both sides of their mouths a little bit. And I think Republicans have been talking to the fundamentalists and the sort of I'm a bit uneasy with feminism and promiscuity and late term abortions people at the same time, you know. And I think there is this like reflexive, sometimes gets called thermostatic public opinion, which is sort of like a fancy way of saying you're reactionary, you just react to things. I think there's been a bit of that now. So anyway, all of which is to say, um, I think if Democrats win, it will be about fear rather than balance. I think that will be the story. And I think the story that will need to be told is people are afraid. And that's, that's not really a story that is being told. The right gets to be afraid. We don't, even though we have more to fear. Anyway, if Republicans win, what's going to be the story there? The story is that, no, it really just is frickin' partisanship all the way down, that people have absorbed these events. <laughs> um, you know, and they've just absorbed it into their partisan worldview. And that I think there's a thing where even if people disagree with the Republican Party's position on things, they don't credit the party with really being as extreme as it is. There's a thing where every now and again, like, Democrats will try to explain to voters what the Republican Party economic platform actually is, and routinely it, it negatively impacts perceptions of Democrats. And... The explanation people have come up with, which I buy into, is that voters simply don't believe them. It just sounds too wild. Like it's, it sounds like you're obviously making stuff up. Um, and that maybe, I think, if Republicans win decisively, what will be revealed is that, like, yeah, uh, yeah, a majority of the electorate don't agree with the Roe overturn, but actually opinion on that side was much softer than we thought. Um, and the the people who are motivated by it and will vote on its behalf are already in the Democratic Party. Like, strong preferences on this are already built in, because after all, the parties have been communicating it. That's the analysis you do there. Finally, 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 what's the analysis we do if it's a mixed result? Republicans pick up Senate seats. No, sorry, Democrats pick up Senate seats but lose the House. Then the analysis is, when people pay attention to a race, they vote for Democrats. When they don't, Republic they vote for Republicans. Say that happens, I won't be that surprised if that happens. What's happened there? Well, in Senate races where you're like, okay, it's against Dr. Oz, who's you know, ridiculous and a clown and doesn't even come from here and like believes all of these crazy things. Oh, yeah, I don't really want to vote for that guy. You know, John Fetterman, like, he seems all right. I'll vote for him. Special elections, when we pay attention to what the candidates actually say, we vote for Democrats. There was a thing in the 2016 race where whenever there was a debate, Trump's numbers would slip a bit and then rebound and it's like just hearing the man in his own words put people off but when the republican party 
is presented to you and sanitised to you through the media, you're much more okay with them because the media presents Republicans as a normal centre-right party. And so when you're voting for House, no one knows who their fucking congressman is. People are just Democrat, Republican. When you're voting for the idea of parties, it's, it's competitive and you'll get the normal thing where you get a bit of a swing towards the party out of power in the midterm, right? When you're actually looking at what the candidates are telling you they plan to do and the type of people that they are, people will, will swing towards the individual Democrat. But so they can see it when you put it in front of them, but they can't, they're not attaching it yet to the parties because I think of the media, the media's role in really both sides in everything. And while Democrats said this and Republicans said this, as if there's no matter of objective fact about even something as stark as January 6th, right? Or what the Dobbs decision is actually going to do and mean, right? And the Republicans' response to what the Dobbs decision is doing is just to lie about it so far, right? Say, no, 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 10-year-olds will be forced to give birth. What about this 10-year-old? Well, she's lying. Her doctor's lying, right? I mean, literally, this is happening. And then the Republican part, the, the, the media comes along and says, well, Democrats say this, Republicans say this. And so I wonder if the challenge and the, the issue for Democrats will be about if you can win when you get people to pay attention, how do you get them to pay attention to all of the races? Or how do you get them to graft the reaction they have when they are paying attention onto the party as a whole, despite how the media sanitises Republican extremism? So that's my third one. So, okay, those are three outcomes, and I've given you my take on, like, what would my analysis be if that outcome were to materialise? So if it was a democratic sweep, I'd say this is about fear. People vote based on fear. And just like in 2000, there was, like, a fear disruption about terrorism. In 98, there was, like, this fear disruption about my private misdeeds might be exposed, I feel bad for someone else having it happen. Here there was a fear reaction of like, they're trying to control my body or my wife's body or whatever. That makes sense. If it's just a Republican sweep, it is just partisanship all the way down and the sorting is complete. You know, there's, there's really not votes to be lost on the basis of this anymore. Or... It's mixed. And like, like I say, it's about when voters pay attention, they get it, but they're, they're still not, they're, they're getting it about individuals, they're not getting it about parties. So, like I said, you do that analysis, and I think, like, your prediction at this point comes from not, like, trying to really fine-tune the statistics. I think the statistics take you so far, and then you've got to journey on on foot with merely your judgment to keep you company. Which of those analysis would I be least surprised if it happened? At this point, I'm not sure. I think there's definitely something to the fear narrative. I think people are afraid. I also think there's something to this thing about voters get it when they witness it directly, and they don't get it when it's presented to them through the media. Or they get it when they're paying attention, right? 
And then, yeah, obviously partisanship, right? Obviously, we are two teams and we, ex we get our information wholly from one side. And so even stuff we disagree with is getting repackaged and messaged to us in a certain way. Obviously, that's true. At the same time, I think, you know, people have been surprised, not really necessarily with good reason they could have seen it coming, with how partisan America has become. And so are perhaps like overcorrecting a bit now and saying it's just partisanship and any polling or special elections that suggest there has been a Dobbs effect, we should ignore them. So in some ways, like, like, like yes, it's partisanship, like 90% of the time, but there is another 10% going on here as well. I do think there's something to the idea of like how much people are paying attention to individual races versus just voting for a party. Now, do you think that, that people are afraid right now? So where does that leave me in terms of prediction? I'm not sure. Really, really not sure. None of those outcomes would be that surprising to me, honestly. Um... Like, an absolute Republican landslide might be a bit surprising. But if they, like, narrowly take the House, like, yeah, then say just the Democrats are maybe, like, hold on to the Senate by a seat or lose it by a seat, I don't think that'd be... That's completely feasible, right? Um, but I think it's okay to just sort of have that range of analysis, because what, what I've done there by saying, okay, if this happened, what would be the analysis? I think that's a good frame to just sort of do an analysis of where we're at right now. I think that does paint a reasonable picture of where we're at right now. And there's sort of different forces and like, you know, which of those forces will overwhelm the others? I don't think we know at this point. I think it's okay to just say we don't know. And you can't even put a number. I mean, you know, I, I do check the 538 forecast and like, oh, it's this range of probabilities and so on. It's a nice little toy. But, like, I don't think you can take it as writ or take it as, like, science or anything. Um, so that's that. And that, that's surely got to be it. I've prattled, oh, fuck. Yes, prattled on way too long about the midterms. Um, I feel like I should probably have split that into two and done audience questions and then midterms. But then again, I did get a lot of questions on midterms. So hopefully... Um, if you had a question, I touched on it in that answer. All right, it is at night now. I'm going to go and chill out. So, thanks as always for listening. If you like the show, subscribe on YouTube, all the channels, follow me on Twitter, all that good stuff. Um, and, yeah. Cheers. More episodes coming shortly, by the way. And yeah, thanks for listening.